0: Thank you guys for joining us as we are continuing this series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. My name's Tim, one of the pastors here. I love to be able to say that because there is a plurality of pastors and elders here at Church of the Valley, and it is exciting. Today we're going to unpack this short passage that Phyllis read from John 17:1 through 5 and we're going to go verse by verse and in some cases word by word just pointing out this prayer that Jesus is about to begin which over the next many weeks we're going to study and unpack. I want to point out a few things today as we jump into John 17 as we picked up this letter, or this book, known as the book of John, in the middle of being in the upper room, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, He has, uh, he has break- broken bread with the other disciples, He's even said, one of you is going to betray me, and that's about to happen, and we studied this as far back as 2019, and Jesus has just told the disciples who would become apostles that He was going to leave, but that he would send the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to lead them towards a ministry that they would have, which was a gospel proclamation ministry to the ends of the earth. Jesus today begins this very long documented prayer that he has to the Father, and we're going to cut it up into bite-sized pieces over the next few weeks. So real quick question for you, I want you to think about this. Who's a person in your life that you know the best? Okay, I want you to think about that person. Barring yourself, who's the person in your life that you know the best? Like, who do you really feel like you have a handle on? Is it your spouse, your child, your friend, your parent, your cousin, your sibling, your coworker? And what is it about your relationship with this person which makes you think you know them? Have you spent a lot of time with them? Have you communicated with them at length for many, many years? Have you watched their responses to difficult circumstances? Have you heard their sense of humor, or lack thereof? And in this time that you've spent with them, have you noticed things about them that when things happen, you're not as surprised as maybe you would be if you didn't know them? I'd say the last 19 months in particular have been some of the most trying times for knowing people. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of people were on Zoom without pants on. Do you know what I mean? And, and especially if, if you were not sheltered in place with someone, maybe you feel a disconnect with those people. And for some, maybe we became a lot closer with those who we're sheltering in place with. We had a fifth child, there you go. But perhaps the people outside of your home have become more and more distant. Perhaps you started to maybe not understand people that prior to the pandemic, you totally felt like you had a handle on. Maybe you don't understand their decisions, their reactions, their personality maybe has changed over the past two years of dealing with this specific pandemic. I ask this question today because here's my main point. If you like to write main points, I'm going to give it to you right now. Here's my main point. That knowing God is the greatest gift that God has ever given his creation. That's the greatest gift. That we could know God. And this isn't by being a moral person or knowing a bunch of facts about God. It requires intimate time with Him. And it takes time away from our own agendas, our own priorities, and expectations of what we ought to attain in this life because we are specifically making time to spend it with the Lord. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to John 17. We're going to walk through this uh, over the next 30 or so minutes. Here's how it begins. John 17, verse 1, just the first part, after Jesus said this, He looked towards heaven, and he prayed after he said this. Well, last week, Pastor Chris did a wonderful job, well done, Pastor, of walking us through the passage that preceded this week's passage, where Jesus tells the disciples that while he's going to leave, their grief will be turned to joy because the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, God himself will indwell them and lead them, and so they will find joy. John Calvin, the theologian, writes about John 17, and he has this quote. He says, Now he most properly betakes himself to prayer, for doctrine has no power if efficacy… Has anyone used that this week, that word? Anyone? Just Mike. Got it. Efficacy be not imparted to it from above. Here's what he means, that uh, even Jesus knew that his doctrine had no power unless he had gone to the Father and prayed to begin with. And often we or me or all of us can think that our strength, our knowledge, our ability to do things has power in and of itself. But that isn't the case. Jesus modeled the necessity to rely on God. And real quick, Jesus is God. So if Jesus did this, I think we ought to do this. He modeled the necessity to rely on God. And how much more do you and I need to rely on God, to bring things to God, not just for His stamp of approval, which, to be honest, we don't normally ask for, but also to have Him search our hearts, to expose rebellion and selfish motives. I can't be the only one who's rebellious and has selfish motives. To give us wisdom that comes from the Scriptures, and to bring to bring our God alongside us as we're walking through decisions that are being made, rather than stiff-arming Him in the little, because we have a God who's personal. He's involved even in the little, and somehow in His infinite omnipresence, He can be involved in what we may feel like are remedial issues, where should we go eat, And at the very same time, keeping the earth spinning on the axis that it's spinning on to support human life so we can have life and breathe. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of all preachers, uh, uh, over 100 years ago said it this way, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. And there's something about prayer that Jesus is modeling here that has to do with the reliance that we ought to have with God. And can I just be, real quick confession, there have been weeks in my life where the only time I've prayed is over a meal. Just me? Come on, testify. The reality is that God is available and we can be going to him whenever we see fit and a lot of us take this for granted. See, our time of prayer with God doesn't have to just be in the morning or just over dinner or when things are difficult, which seem to be the three times He gets the most attention. We get to commune with God and Jesus, the second person of the triune God who modeled this because Jesus needed this because connection to God is the most important relationship for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how much more do we need to have relationship with our triune God? So then the second part of verse 1, I promise I won't knock down every verse this way. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Okay, first we have to begin with the word glorify. Because it seems like a pretty Christian word. And well, Christ said it, so yes, it's a pretty Christian word. But we use glorify in a weird way. Did you guys know that? How you doing, bro? Just glorifying Jesus. Are you, though? Let's start with the definition of glorify. To glorify is to make known something's worth or to acknowledge its high rank or status. This can be done with words, which tend to be what we would call praising something, or this can be with actions, which would be living for that thing. So when we praise the Lord, we aren't just singing Christian songs with three chords on a guitar, we're speaking about the value that the Lord has in our lives. We're expressing verbally the rank and the honor that the Lord has in our own lives. So when we glorify him, we live this out. We make known, not just verbally, but practically, how important our God is to us. And this is what he deserves, to be honored and praised and glorified. In fact, 1 Chronicles 16 puts it this way, Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in splendor of His holiness. God is the only one who truly is due honor and praise. The character of God is without blemish, without stain, without sin. And so acknowledging that, which is mankind's very action, if we truly believe in God, becomes something that we want to do. Did you guys know that? As often as we can, which comes through how we live our lives, how we speak about God, and how we acknowledge him daily, but also corporately in a worship service. So why do we do this? To celebrate the the reality that our God is awesome. That's why you're here. Well, I came because my spouse made me. Okay, but we're still going to celebrate the fact that God is awesome. So we do what we do here to ascribe worth to give him credit and honor that he is due. And that is our God who did for us what we could not do, in our, do for ourselves in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, the hour has come. This was about the kingdom of God being recognized here on earth. Up until this point, Jesus had traveled and taught about the kingdom, but the culmination of this message was that the king would sacrifice himself for the subjects. And that was about to take place. And so Jesus' request to the Father was that, since the hour has come, glorify your Son, make known who He is in the world, so that the Son can glorify the Father. We're in an age of divisive cultures, don't you think? People get canceled. People are angry at people's closed-mindedness. People affect others with their decisions. People uh, demonize different ways of thinking which, if we all take an honest look at history, has been the consistency or the consistent depravity of man throughout the ages. But we have more social media and we have more news outlets to put this on an even greater display today than ever before. For the Godhead or the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, sometimes we almost want to pick teams, don't we? We want to say, well, we're about the Father or we're a Jesus church or uh, I'm more about the Holy Spirit, as if they're in some jealous competition amongst one another. But God in three persons is about making known that you can have a relationship with God the Father through the finished work and mediation of the Son and the illumination of our need through the Holy Spirit. And it all can be solved through the gospel of grace which God has given to us. Mike appreciates that. The Godhead works together to bring glory to God. And Jesus, praying to the Father, is requesting this glory to be done for both he and the Father. Okay, real talk. I'm going to start now. I think I get a lot more credit for what God does at this church than I deserve. God's the one doing the work. We have amazing elders who God has put in place who have taken on huge challenges to support and defend the gospel in this community. Ruth, you should like tap your husband right now. We have a staff that works hard to provide an opportunity weekly to glorify God together, and they serve in, attend, or lead community groups that give each of us an opportunity for community to be smaller and more intimate rather than the corporate gathering. We have people who serve faithfully in this church. Not because they earn anything, but because they love Jesus and Jesus' church and they read the scriptures and they feel a conviction to glorify God within this community of believers for everyone else's benefit rather than their own, and yet God still spiritually grows them through that obedience. Verse 2, Jesus says, for you granted him, he's kind of speaking in the third person, him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Jesus while praying to the Father acknowledges that all people or in other translations all flesh have been put under the authority of the Son. Mankind is under the will and rule of the Son. King Jesus is the king church. For those who he decides to give eternal life to, that is the choice of the Son. But it's not just giving eternal life to someone. It's someone being given to the Son in the first place. We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. Okay, real quick, did anyone say sovereignty this week? Did anyone, think about your week, did anyone? Okay, Mike did, Mike's afraid to tell people. Okay, Mike's the only one that uses big words from now on. That's what I figured out. That's my takeaway today. We talk a lot about sovereignty of God, or at least I thought we did, but here, up here, we talk about sovereignty of God in salvation, primarily because as we go verse by verse, passage by passage, the Bible talks a lot about God's sovereignty, Salvation is the Lord's. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. Here, I'll show you. Psalm chapter 3 verse 8 in NASB, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Psalm 62 verse 1, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except no one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 6, 23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift Of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which Spencer reminded us months ago that it's not a real sermon unless you quote this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God's to be given as God sees fit. It's a gift so that no one can boast. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and no one deserves God's saving grace, yet he gives it anyway to whom he chooses. Salvation is not something mankind wills or even decides on. It is a gift that is received or rejected. And the Father gives to the Son people who he draws to himself. And the Son can give eternal life to. And it's within this triune God's nature to give good gifts, but no gift is more important or more costly than salvation. And in order for any of us to not be found guilty before God, we have to be known as what the Bible calls righteous. Not like righteous, but righteous. We need to have a right standing to be justified before a holy and perfect God. There had to be an exchange of life for ours, and it couldn't just be any life. It had to be a perfect life, one that was without blemish, transgression, or sin. And that life would be traded. It would be exchanged for ours. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I think this is a tattoo verse right here. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, this is the message that we've received if you're a Christian. This is the message that we proclaim. This is the message that I personally have committed my life to proclaiming. God did it for us. It was a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't attain it. We didn't even accept it. It was all God. In his glorious riches of his mercy, not giving us what we deserve in wrath for our sin, but actually giving us what we don't deserve in his Son. And this message, this trading of Jesus' perfect record for ours, this message, this shouldn't get old. This gift cannot decay. This gift is why we glorify God, because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he made a way through the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate this glorious gift that we have been given to live in it. See, I don't love Jesus because Jesus was a good teacher or seemed like a cool dude. I love Jesus because Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. He paid for my sin. That's why I love Jesus. So Jesus died so that we could live. But not just go on our way and then die of old age later. No, 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 no. Jesus will die in this passage. He's about to go to the cross, and as he prays this, as he asks the Father to glorify the Son so the Son can glorify the Father, it is all based on Jesus coming to do what he was sent to do. You know what Jesus came to do? He came to die. That's why Jesus came. And his goal was to trade, well, his main goal was to be obedient to his Father at all times. And he came and he traded his life for many. All of you in this room, he traded his life so that you would repent and turn to him. And this is his purpose. It was to bring the kingdom of God to earth, not with a sword, but with a cross. And this death will provide life. It will provide eternal life like no one even understands yet. So look at Jesus. Mike says this is one of my favorite verses. He's probably right. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I absolutely love when there's a definition of something defined in the Bible. It's extra exciting that even though all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it's from God, written by the Holy Spirit through some messed up people who actually penned it, these very words are from Jesus, who is not messed up. He is perfect. And Jesus said this, written by the Apostle John. He said, what is eternal life? Look at how Jesus describes it. It is to know God, to know him personally and experientially, to being personally connected with God, to share time and space, and words, and to have communed with him. To know God and the Son, what do we need to know? First off, we need to know who they are. God in three persons is the only true God. Not Allah, not Buddha, not Zeus, not even Thor, okay? Not anyone but God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the true God. But that's the minimum, That's what we ought to know. I can know all the right things about someone and not know them at all. Have I ever told you guys about the time I had coffee with Steph Curry? Okay, well, you're going to hear it again. (laughs) So, years ago, when Steph had just won his first championship, that's Steph right there, number 30, with his his, uh, mouthpiece in his mouth while he shoots free throws, and probably made that one, because he makes like 92% of his free throws, when... When I was at Santana Row, which is like less than a mile that way, I'm at Santana Row, and I went to Pete's Coffee because, as we all know, Pete's is holier than Starbucks. Amen. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Thank you, Marie. And so, um, so I go to Pete's, and I don't drink caffeine anymore, even though Chris uh, said it was a command of the Lord. It's not. And. But I used to get my iced tea lemonade, mostly tea, very little lemonade. I grabbed my Arnold Palmer and I walked out of the pizza at Santana Row and I started to walk past different restaurants like Cino and some other places. And as I was walking, in front of me, I saw Stephen Curry and his wife Aisha and at the time their little baby Riley. Great name, wrong spelling, but great name. And they were walking towards me and I won't mention which lesser coffee brand they had, but it was Starbucks. And they were walking towards me, and Steph had his Starbucks in his hand, and as I saw him, I looked at him, and knowing so much about Steph, I looked at Steph, and I was like, what's up? And he goes, what's up? That was the time I had coffee with Steph Curry. (laughs) Now, Steph Curry went to Davidson College. He got drafted by the Golden State Warriors in 2009, NBA draft, as the seventh pick he became the face of the franchise many years ago. He's won three NBA titles in the mid-2010s while going to the finals five straight times. He averaged 32 points a season, or 32 points last season, and should have, in my unbiased opinion, won the MVP, but he didn't. He has such nicknames as Steph, Baby-Faced Assassin, Chef Curry, The Human Torch, and my favorite, Threesus. <laughs> And even though I know a whole bunch about number 30 on the Warriors, doesn't mean I know him. Because other than walking past him and giving him a what's up, there has been no interaction, connection, or relationship other than me yelling as I watch the games he plays in. And my fear for people in 2021, inside and outside of the church, is that they think they can go what's up to Jesus, and that makes them in relationship. And they act as if they deserve eternal life because maybe on Christmas and Easter they go, what's up? First off, none of us deserve eternal life. But who are the ones who actually know the Lord? Well, the Apostle John gives another explanation in his next letter, First John, and if you're like, pastor, don't be judgy, well, get out of the Bible. The Bible's the one that says it. First John chapter 2, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him but does not do what He commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His Word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him." Now listen, this doesn't mean that he who is most moral, he who keeps every command perfectly is the one who knows Him, or looks the most Christian is the actual Christian. It means that those who by faith obey His Word progressively for the right reasons. Because love has been manifested in them, and that love leads to obedience to God. 1 John 5.3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. Why are His commands not burdensome? Because we love Him. And serving God out of love will always surpass doing things out of obligation, always. Our faith is not a one, uh, listen, as Christians, our faith is not a one of have to. Our faith is one of get to. And we get to serve the Lord. We get to share Him with others. We get to glorify Him with our lives and our words. And so many people are caught in the religion of duty (laughs) rather than the faith of grace. So, eternal life, do you know Jesus? Not know a bunch of stuff about Him. Not have knowledge of his existence, not be able to regurgitate some of his favorite sayings that you saw on the bottom of an in-and-out cup, but do you have a relationship with him? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus is finishing the Sermon on the Mount, one of the scariest passages I think any Christian should read. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. That should scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of some of us. Some of us have been serving, or giving, or trying, without actually understanding that Jesus is the only one who can justify us. I'm not saying stop serving or giving or trying. That's someone who doesn't have or at least isn't being led by the Holy Spirit would do. The Holy Spirit points us to repentance, and repentance points us to freedom. So if you've been serving or giving or trying really hard, but you attempted to do any of that to earn God's favor, cut it out. Put that down. Repent and change direction. And find the freedom that comes from knowing that you have a God who forgives those who repent, those who acknowledge their shortcomings, who turn from their sin. Church, we have a God that saves. We have a God who forgives Because his nature is to be glorified through his grace to undeserving people like you and like me. Verse 4. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, Jesus says. Jesus, up until this point, has done miracles. He's taught about the kingdom of God. He's healed the sick. He's rebuked the religious He's done all of this to lead us to this evening that he will be arrested, tried, and convicted within 24 hours, and then he will hang on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. All out of obedience to his Father. All to be the perfect sacrifice that the world needed. All to glorify God and make it possible for people to be in relationship with God in a similar way that Jesus is in relationship with the Father. Because. In heaven, we have no chasm because there's no sin. There's no fracture of relationship. This is what Jesus was sent for. This is what He came to do. Jesus came to die so that we could live. And he came to sacrifice himself so that we could be included in him. No greater moment in history will take place than, other than, than the next three days of the death of God's only begotten son and his victorious resurrection from the dead. So for some, they see Jesus speaking as if the crucifixion has already happened in John 17 at the beginning, that it already took place, but it has not. He has concluded his earthly ministry, though, the ministry of the word. His proclamation of the kingdom of God is now done with because Jesus in just a little while will be put to death, but no longer will he have a ministry of teaching and healing. The next thing he will do will be crucified and resurrected, and he will show himself over 40 days to many people prior to ascending to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father even now. But let me let you in on a little secret secret, real quick. Um, Just because Jesus' work is finished, that doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. So let me ask you a simple question. Have you shared your hope in Jesus with anyone lately? My favorite way to do it, it's like the easiest thing in the world, is when someone asks me, how was your weekend, I talk about what God did in church. That is low-level, super simple, super easy. And I think they were expecting me to go, I watched football, but I'm like, and then Jesus did this in the text that we're studying, and they're like, what? And a lot of times it creates a real conversation. See, I'm not asking you, have you shared your faith with someone, have you shared your hope with someone to guilt you into it? I'm asking you to remind you that if you've committed your life to Jesus, the Spirit of God indwells you to make you a witness for Jesus, to tell the world about Jesus. He doesn't want us to stay in our Christian bubble and stay away from those who are perishing. We get to spend eternity with Christ and those who are his, but there are many out there who do not understand the gospel of grace. And if we could knock down these walls and I could just be louder and Valley Village could hear me, I'd be good with that. But we need to tell people about Jesus, church. See, the Spirit equips us to share and testify, to make known that Jesus is alive. So I say this with love. Stop being so selfish and go tell somebody. Please. Verse 5. And now the Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. (sighs) Jesus prays, that he would be glorified like before, before the world was created. Jesus has always been. He didn't come onto the scene when Mary was found pregnant. He existed before that. He's always existed. He, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, have always been existing. They were not created. They were from the beginning. And this prayer that we studied today, while only being the beginning of this much longer prayer that we will pick apart over the next few weeks, This prayer begins with Jesus asking the Father to glorify him, asking that as the glory that he and the Father shared at the beginning would be fulfilled in what was about to happen, Jesus heading to a cross. In his book, Written in Blood by Robert Coleman, tells a story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance of recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary? The doctor asked Johnny. And Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. Then he smiled and he said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned at his sister Mary. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaky, he broke the silence. He said, Doctor, When do I die? Only then did he realize, or only then did the doctor realize that while Johnny hesitated, while his lip trembled, when he had agreed to donate his blood, he thought he was giving his blood to his sister meant that he was giving up his own life. In that brief moment, he made the greatest decision. Johnny fortunately didn't have to die to save his sister, but each of us, however, We have a condition way more serious than Mary's, and it required Jesus to give not just his blood, but his life. And through that sacrifice, God in all his glory is accessible, not because we did anything to earn God's favor, but because Jesus in his selflessness and obedience to his Father traded his life for ours. So how could we not give him glory and praise and worship that he's due if we truly believe that he did that for us? The only reason I think some of us don't is because we may have forgotten what was sacrificed, even though we have crosses everywhere. Or sadly, maybe it's just because we don't really know who Jesus is. We know about him. We wear his jersey. But to know him is to love him. And to love him is to want to obey him, not because we gain anything, but because we are his and he is ours. So real quick, um, at the beginning of this year, we as elders shared our vision for 2021. It was to recalibrate our emphasis of the redemptive work of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection for sinners like us. That for many of us doesn't seem much different than the focus of this community for the past few years. But what it exposed was that some of what we do wasn't wrapped up in the gospel of grace. But it was wrapped up in things that weren't the gospel. Often the world replaces the work of Christ as our salvation with being a good person. Being a good person does not get you to Jesus, it doesn't. Neither does Jesus make you a good person. He makes you a forgiven person who through trial and error and obedience. We start to look more like Jesus. The world will also try to replace the redemptive work of Christ with getting along with everyone. The problem with that is the New Testament, where people would part ways because of differing of opinions on theology, methodology, and interpretation of Scripture all of the time. And yet God is still at work today. In his church, the great church, the big C church, and in this church, not making everyone agree on everything, but exposing the truth of the gospel and making dead people come alive and alive people grow in maturity. Listen, church, uh, as Mike, Chris, and I were praying earlier today, this was even said, our target is Jesus. His work is to save us. And then it is to sanctify us to look more like Him. So, if it's been a hard season for you, for whatever reason, don't lose heart. And I have a passage for you that I want you to remember, write down, write on your forehead, I don't care, do something with it. But let's look at the words of the Apostle Paul who writes to the church in Philippi and is contrasting his former life, his former life's work The things that he did that were very religious to the reality and importance of what it means to know Jesus. Here's what he says, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I picture him flexing, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Here's your application, church. Verse 12. Sorry. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Church, I have spent way too much time looking to what is behind and not enough time straining towards what is ahead. God is good, church, and he is at work doing good in the people of his church. Lives are being changed. Trials are producing perseverance in his people. People's depth and understanding of the gospel and of God's word and his holiness are all being pursued. I think that's a huge win. And I think God is still good. Not just because I believe that or even know that, but because I know him. An eternal life has been given to me and to many of you not because you were a better person or you were smarter or better looking than someone else, but because God in his mercy and grace decided to give you what you didn't understand and did not deserve in the sacrifice of God's only son. May we live with passion, church, because we have access to God, because we may know Jesus, and because we are convinced that Jesus is alive.